Good morning, everyone. You can go ahead and turn to the book of Ruth. Got the five books of Moses to start your Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And then that's what we're looking at today, chapter 3, Ruth chapter 3. And we're going to read today from Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Hear the word of the Lord. last time I preached, I mentioned uh, Jane Austen's book, Pride and Prejudice, and there's another moment from that book which fits our, our sermon this morning. So in that book, uh, the man Darcy uh, gets smitten by Elizabeth Bennet, and so he does what men do when they get smitten by a woman. He proposes. Actually, he proposes twice, which obviously means the first time did not go well. <laughs> and that first proposal comes as a bit of a surprise uh, to the readers and to Elizabeth Bennet. Uh, but there's a lot of things that are working against him in the first proposal. He comes to that proposal, though, confident. He thinks this is going to go well. You know, clearly a man in my position proposing to a woman in her position, it's going to go well. But she has her own opinions. That's one of the important elements of the book, is Elizabeth's opinions. So uh, she has opinions, but also opinions about what Darcy has done his actions. So one of the things Darcy did, which she did not appreciate at all, and in fact, she found it completely unforgivable, is that Darcy worked very hard to break up the marriage of Elizabeth's sister and then a friend of Darcy's. That's, that to Elizabeth was unforgivable. There was no way that she could accept his proposal with that fact being true. And then there was the fact that a, another character in the book had lied about Darcy, and Elizabeth believed the lie. It was a lie that really put Darcy himself in a very negative light, and that colored Elizabeth's whole opinion of Darcy. So that gossip, that slander, affected her opinion of him. So that hurt him in his proposal. That was undeserved, obviously. But then the third thing that really hurt Darcy's proposal is what he said. It was the more he talked, the worse it got. That's uh, a good lesson for guys in those kinds of situations. Sometimes the best thing to do is just to shut up. But yeah, the more, the more he talked, the worse it got. Because he started off by saying, my heart, you know, I'm in love with you, I want to marry you. Even though my mind says this is a bad idea, because obviously look at your position, look at my position. My friends are telling me it's a bad idea. My, in fact, my own character resists me from, from proposing to you and expressing my love for you. And he just, kept, he just keeps going. And of course, she's bitterly offended, responds, he responds and further. And then it ends with her saying, I wouldn't marry you if you were the last man on earth. And then the second half of the book happens. And in the second half of the book, Jane Austen, who, of course, she's the great orchestrator of all the events in the book, obviously, as the author. So this orchestrator of events, Jane Austen, orchestrates these events so that the fictional Darcy and Elizabeth will come to know each other in a much more accurate light. And so at the second proposal, he's humbled, and he knows that she's his superior. She's humbled. She knows that he's her superior. And if, and if you go into a marriage with both people thinking they got the better end of the deal, that's a good thing. And so that's what happens at the end. So he proposes again. She accepts. Sorry to ruin the story for you. And then there's a marriage at the end of the story. And so what we have in the book of Ruth is also this orchestrated set of events that leads to ultimately a marriage at the end. And in the middle, there's this proposal, which is what we're going to look at this morning, the proposal. But the great difference between Austin and and the story of Ruth is one's fiction. It never happened. There is no such person as Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet. 
But in the book of Ruth, these are real people. So the, the marvel of what you have in, in biblical history is that there's the, the written record of the history. So that's, that's given to us by God, the author. But the history that actually happened and the events, the people that said and did things that are described in this written history, the people that are saying and doing those things actually lived. And they really did say and do those things. And God, as the author, is sort of the double author, orchestrating the actual history and then inspiring and orchestrating the written history. So in Ruth this morning, we're looking at uh, chapter 3. As I said, it's the proposal, and we'll see that the end of the orchestrated event is a wedding, and we'll see that the end of God's providential orchestrating of all history is actually a wedding, which we'll look at at the end of our, our sermon. So the topic that we want to think about is providence, this way that God orchestrates events, and especially how to live in light of providence, because it's, it's easy to live wrongly in light of God's providence. If he's the one who's, who's organizing and controlling all things, you could go very passive and just think, well, what I'm supposed to do as, a, as, a, as someone who has a firm faith in God's providence is just to sit back and watch things unfold. But actually, as you see the book of Ruth, you, you realize that's not at all the right lesson to take from the fact that God is providentially in control of all things. As faithful Christians, we engage the events and the world around us. We take initiative, we think, we plan, we act. We're not passive as we live our Christian lives. We're very actively engaged in this life that God has put before us. Chip last week quoted from the Heidelberg Catechism, and I'm going to uh, do the same thing this morning. So this is the Lord's Day number 10. If you, are, if you do a search for, on the Heidelberg Catechism, this is Lord's Day 10, and it's got two questions about God's providence. Question 27 and 28. The first question says this, what do you understand by the providence of God? So what are we even talking about when we say that phrase, providence of God? It means this, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, Come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Then the next question is, well, how do we respond to that? Question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? So we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation, will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. In that answer, we're going we're gonna to go back to this a few times. In that answer, it says, be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence. So patient for the hard things, thankful for the good things, but in all things, we can have good confidence. So as we act and as we engage and as we trust in God's providence, patience when things are hard, thankful when things are good, and then good confidence in all things, that needs to mark us as Christians. That's what it means to, to live in light of God's providence, which is what we're talking about. This series on Ruth is, is called The Unexpected Kindness of God, and the ultimate result of God's providence for his people is that, the unexpected kindness of God. It comes to us in a variety of ways, but that's the result for us, the unexpected kindness straight from God's hand. So we're just going to work through the narrative in three sections. First, a risky plan, the first five verses. Second, a shocking proposal. And then third, a firm resolve. So a risky plan in the first five verses and then a shocking proposal in the next four verses. And then a firm resolve. Let's pray. Father, we pray for faith in your sovereign hand, who's you who is working all things according to your perfect plan, your good counsel, your almighty power. And we pray that we would be able to face the hard things that we're going to meet as, uh, as you 
as you design our lives, there is a mix of really hard things and really good things. And so when we face the hard things, Lord, we do pray that we would face them with patience, with the confidence that even those things you will work together for our good. And as we face the good things, Lord, let us remember that those are gifts that you give to us and let us remember to be thankful. Let us have eyes to see those good things and be actively thanking you for those good things. Let us have confidence, Lord, that you, you are our perfect father, that when these things come to us by your fatherly hand, you are a perfect father in that. You give us what is needed. You give us what will ultimately be used for blessings. So help us to know and trust in that. And especially as we think about this topic of marriage this morning, at least indirectly as it keeps coming up in, these, in the book of Ruth, Lord, we do pray for strong marriages in our church. We pray for men who are godly and self-controlled, strong men who treat women well. And we pray for, for women who will be strong women in the, in the appropriate ways and will be subject to their husbands in the appropriate ways and will, will be courageous to act but always trusting in the Lord and God fears as they do act. And Father, we know that a good and a strong and an enduring marriage is, is a gift that you give. We, in our own efforts, can't get there. And so we pray that you, through your spirit, would bring that about in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a risky plan, those five verses that we've read already. <clears throat> so in this four-act play, as it were, in the book of Ruth, act one, you have the return to, to Bethlehem. So they're in Moab, and they return to Bethlehem. And then in act two, this woman, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, both of whose husbands have died by this point, need to provide for themselves. And so Ruth goes out, and she gleans in the field of Boaz. So that's act two. And so she happens to go to the field of Boaz. That's how, the, that's how the narrator says it to us. And then in Act 3 is this morning, this, this moment. <clears throat> so we start with Naomi's desire for Ruth. So in 3.1, Naomi, her father, mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? So this is Naomi's kindness to Ruth. Naomi cares for Ruth, wants blessings for Ruth, and so she wants rest and that it may be well with you. Now in one nine, she had prayed for the, the two women, her, uh, uh, Naomi had prayed for a uh, blessing for Naomi, uh, Naomi had prayed for blessing for Ruth and for Orpah, and she had said, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. And so in some ways she's now actively fulfilling her own desire for blessing in the life of Ruth. So that's, that's verse 1, this, this, uh, this desire of Naomi's. And the second thing is Naomi's plan. I mean, if, if, uh, if, um, if a mother-in-law in this situation desires, um, it's an unusual situation, isn't it, to speak in terms of mother-in-law, uh, daughter-in-law, when there's no husbands yet. But in this case, if you desire for this woman, Ruth, to marry, there's a lot of ways you might go about setting that into action and making that happen. Well, Naomi's plan is an unusual one. And so in verse 3, we get Naomi's plan. So she tells Ruth, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And then make yourself known to him and, and basically see what happens. So that's her plan to get dressed up and then go to the threshing floor. And there's tons of discussion in the commentaries about whether this is a, a, a sensual act of seduction or not. And I think the best case is that it's not. And the clearest reason we would say that is this, this text sounds very, very similar to another moment uh, in Old Testament history, which is actually when King David loses his son, uh, his, baby, his infant son. So when he loses his infant son, he fasts and he prays, thinking that there's a chance that God's going to raise him from the dead. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't. God doesn't raise his son. And so David at that point rises, washes, anoints himself, changes his clothes, and he goes into the house of the Lord and he worships. I mean, almost identical phrases are used. And so what's happening at that moment with King David is he's, he's leaving behind, at least um, in, in a certain sense. He's leaving behind his mourning and grieving and moving on to worship and what the Lord has for him next. And so that seems to be what, Ruth, what Naomi is saying to Ruth. I lost my husband, you lost your husband, but, but now it's time to sort of 
begin anew, put aside your, your, your clothes of mourning and put on some new clothes and see what the Lord has for you. What's next? You know, begin to live your life in a new way. And so that seems to be a much better reading of this, a much more accurate reading of this. And so that's, it's right that the, a lot of the English translations use best clothes, you know, put on your best clothes and go meet the man. But actually the ESV has it right. Put on your cloak, you know, the normal outer garment for someone who is poor. Put on your cloak and then go, and then go see what happens. So, she, she was, so Ruth is supposed to go make herself known to the man. There's kind of a double meaning with that. You know, it's physically make yourself known, but also let, the, let what's in your heart and mind come out. Reveal yourself, your desires, your intention for this man, Boaz. And Ruth's response is very simple. So after, after this pretty long speech, actually, by Naomi, she simply says, all that you say, I will do. So her, um, her submission to God's plan through Naomi is, is evident there. All that you say, I will do. So we want to think here about Naomi's action, and especially in light of providence. Now, Naomi desires that God would providentially provide a husband for Ruth. But to get there, she acts. She steps into uh, 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 the future uh, and once is determined to act to, make, to see what happens. So the Heidelberg Catechism had said that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. All things, all things. But when you read a book like Ruth, you recognize that that, doesn't, that doesn't, isn't to lead us to a passive life where we just wait, sit back, and wait for God to do all those things. Now, there's a lot of times in, in life where the, where the right answer is to act, to initiate, to plan, to strategize, and then take all the risks that go along with acting. And in this case, the risks are, the risks are massive risks, actually. <clears throat> so Ruth could easily be falsely accused for doing what she's doing, you know, as a, as, a, as a, a woman of sin seducing a man in the middle of the night. She could easily be falsely accused. Boaz might not be the man they think he is, and he might take advantage of Ruth. The couple could marry and sort of forget about Naomi. You know, they got what they wanted. They got spouses, and they, maybe they'd just forget all about Naomi. So when Naomi sends Ruth, Naomi does not know how the story ends, right? We know how the story ends, so we're like, oh, yeah, this is exciting, we, but we, we kind of always know the ending. But with, with Naomi in this moment, there's no sense of that. You know, she's sent, sending Ruth, uh, Ruth off with great risk, not knowing how this is all going to result. And there is something to that with us as we live our lives. Life is filled with risk. It is filled with risk. Uh, acting, making decisions that have consequences, there's just all kinds of risk involved in living our lives. And yet we embrace that risk also keeping in mind God's providence. There's a confidence we can have even as we take risks because we believe God is providentially working all things for good, re- for good reasons, good purposes in my life. And so we're, we, don't, we don't know that things are, whether things are going to be hard or good. <clears throat> you know, ultimately they're good, but in terms of welcome and pleasing, happy things. We don't know which side it's going it's, it's to be. But we can be patient with the hard things, and we can, um, uh, <clears throat> that other word that I was using earlier in the sermon, let me go back there. Patient with the hard things, thankful with the good things. That word thankful escaped me. We can be thankful for the good things, and then we can be confident in all things, in God's providence, as we move forward. So we're not passive, we're actively embracing the life that God has for us. So that's point one, is... Uh, is focusing on Naomi. Now we get to a shocking proposal in verses 6 through 9. So she, that is Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. We'll explain uh, the words, but that is, that is a marriage proposal. That's what's going on there. Now, this is one of those places where Ruth's character is again revealed. So it's been revealed already in several different ways. 
You know, her commitment to Naomi is impressive. Her conversion to Yahweh, the, uh, the true God, is impressive in chapter 1. Uh, both of those ha- things happen in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, she, she proves to be a diligent, hardworking woman as she goes and gleans in the field. And now this. Now the moment is the threshing of the, of the grain. So there's, there's been some weeks of harvesting, and now there's, now there's the threshing involved. So you take the, all the, the, the grain and the chaff that's all mixed together, and so guys are going to spend a lot of hours, and when, and when there's some kind of breeze, they're, they're basically going to take their uh, uh, pitchforks or, or tools, and they're going to throw up the grain, and the wind is going to blow away the chaff, and the grain's going to drop to the ground. So it's going to take hours and hours and hours and hours to do this. And I guess it's a time of celebration, so often they would end their time of, of the threshing. Because, you know, this is, this is the harvest, right? This is, this is when money comes in, we get to, we get to eat the, the, the grain that we've harvested. Good things are going to come our way, right, because of the harvest. So it makes sense. It would also be a time of celebration. And so there's, there's uh, some wine or some, of some sort, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a festive time. And probably not a great time for a woman to show up in the middle of the night. So Ruth uh, goes here in the middle of the night, and then at midnight, it's very specific, at midnight, uh, she's just there somewhere where she can observe things going on, but she's kind of uh, withdrawn so no one can see her. And so she then uncovers uh, Boaz's blankets, and, and we just want to think just basic facts here. So his legs, his legs are covered because it's a, it's a chilly night. She uncovers his legs. Uh, again, you don't need to think anything sensual with that. Just practical, if your blanket falls off, sometimes you get cold and you wake up. And so that's what she's counting on, and that's exactly what happens. So he wakes up, and there's a woman at his feet. You know, this is, this is not what he expected to, to happen, you know, as he went to sleep, uh, feeling happy and good about the harvest. And again, there's a lot of discussion about whether there's anything romantic in what's happening here, but I think the best reading is to say it's, it's, it's not a romantic action. However, it is an action that could easily be confused for a romantic action. And that's in some ways where all the risk comes in. I mean, Boaz could easily mistake her initiative for, well, Ruth isn't the woman I thought she was. She's actually a woman of sin, and I want no part of her because of that. As we said already, he could have taken advantage of her. You know, he's, you know, maybe a guess is he's 50-ish, and she's in her 20s, perhaps. You know, he's old, but he's, he's not so old that he's not actively taking part in the harvest and celebrating uh, till late at night with his workers. But then you get, so in the midst of this risky situation, you get Ruth's words in verse 9. This is one of those places where the, 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 the quality of what she says is a, is a clue that this is, a, this is a, an impressive, worthy woman. Verse 9, so he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So I am Ruth, your servant, and that might seem like a, a diminutive description of herself, but actually, it's the word for servant here is a different word than she used the last time she addressed herself to Boaz. So the first time she addressed herself to Boaz, it was as a servant in a more lowly understanding of servant, not, not the kind of woman you would consider marrying. And now when she addresses him as servant, she uses the same word for servant that Bathsheba used when, she had, when Bathsheba addressed David as your servant. You know, I am, I am your wife at, that, at, that, at this point, Bathsheba's David's wife and calls herself your servant because she's appealing that Solomon would be the one who would take the throne. And so there's, there's, a, there's a submission in Ruth's words and there's also a, a sense that she knows that she's, she's not nothing. So I am Ruth, your servant. Then she says, spread your wings over your servant. Which is basically saying, I mean, it's a, it's a directive. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a second person, you. You, it's not a, it's not a you don't want to say that she's demanding that this happen, but she is saying you. You take care of me, provide for me as a husband. <clears throat> now it's interesting that in, in chapter two, verse 12, Boaz, speaking to Ruth, said, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So that's Boaz to Ruth. 
And really what Ruth is saying is, you be the answer to your own prayer. You prayed for me that God, that God would provide uh, wings to protect and provide for me. You be the answer to that prayer. That's, what, that's really what Ruth is saying. And then the third, things, third thing Ruth says is that you are a redeemer. And Chip addressed this some last week, but we will, we'll go over it again because it's a, it's a really important concept in the book of Ruth. You are a redeemer. And that's, that's meant in a very technical sense, not in some uh, broad kind of the way that Christ redeems us type of way. It's a very specific understanding of redeemer. In the Old Testament, there is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. Someone keeping their land and keeping their name were vitally important in the Old Testament. And sometimes poverty would mean that you have to sell your land. And if you were forced to sell your land, because remember, Elimelech in chapter 1 was forced he sold his land and then he went to Moab because of a famine. So Naomi comes back, no longer possesses Elimelech's land, and, and so neither Naomi nor Ruth have land. Well, one of the things that a kinsman redeemer can do is buy your land. And so even though the, uh, the kinsman redeemer is going to buy that land, the name will be in, uh, the, um, it'll be in the name of the first person who had the land. So Elimelech, in other words. So in this case, Boaz would buy the land, and, but the land would, would sort of remain in Elimelech's name. So his, his land, his ownership to the land of Israel, the promised land in Israel, would, would, would retain. So that's one understanding of kinsman redeemer. Another way that you could redeem is if you had to sell yourself into slavery because you were so poor and become an indentured servant. And an indentured Israelite servant was different than a foreign slave that would be brought into, into the nation. But if you were an indentured indentured servant, what your kinsman redeemer could do is buy you out of slavery. So they could come and they could redeem you, pay money, which is what redeem means, pay money to get you out of that, uh, that state of, of indentured servitude. But then the third way is, is also meant here, and it's this thing called leveret marriage. Not Levite marriage, which would have to do with the priests, the tribe of Levi, but leveret marriage, which is a weird word, comes from the Latin for brother-in-law. And this is very bizarre. But this, what is meant, this is from uh, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. So this is one of, the, one of the laws in the Old Testament. So you've got two brothers. One brother dies, one brother marries, and then he dies. They have no son. So what the law says is that the, the, his, his brother needs to marry the woman that this guy was married to and have a son, and the first son will be in the name of the dead brother. So the first son, not all the children, but the first son. So that's because the, the lever, the brother-in-law, is doing this thing. Well, it's called lever at marriage. And so what, what seems to have happened is, so that's Deuteronomy 25. What seems to have happened by the time you get to the book of Ruth, uh, some uh, centuries later, a couple centuries later after Deuteronomy 25, is that it was extended to beyond the brother. So it was just the closest relative. And again, this is to keep the integrity of the land in Israel as well as the 12 tribes so that no tribe would die out. That was, that was critically important in the Old Testament. And so the lever, the lever at marriage was one way that that would happen. And so what, what Ruth is saying is, you do that thing. So Naomi had clearly explained to Ruth what, what lever at marriage was. The, that this, uh, this is in, taking place in Bethlehem. That, that, that village understood what lever at marriage was. And so what Ruth is saying is, is, is do that thing, that lever at marriage thing for me. And so, so what's, what would happen at that point is that uh, the name of Elimelech would, would keep on through the line of Boaz. But Boaz and Ruth would also find spouses at the same time. <clears throat> so in other words, Ruth says a lot in verse 9. This isn't, this is no weak or unintelligent woman. This is a, this is a, a strong woman in the, right kind of, in the right kind of way. You know, uh, to borrow Mary Cassian's title, the right kind of strong. Ruth has the right kind of strong. She speaks very directly, candidly, precisely. Daryl Block, uh, as he's commenting on, on this moment, he uses the word demanding, which I think is too strong, but you, but you, know, you know what he's saying. So Block, Daniel Block, as he's describing this, says that here is a servant 
demanding that the boss marry her, a Moabite making the demand of an Israelite, a woman making the demand of a man, a poor person making the demand of a rich man. Now, she doesn't go too far. She speaks and then waits to see what this guy Boaz is going to do, right? And we'll see what he does. He, he leaps into action, basically. She likes me. And so then he leaps, he leaps into action. We'll see that in the next point. But the point here is, like in chapter 1, Ruth is not passive as she considers the providence of God in her life and the providence of God that exists over Israel and the providence of God that is. She's not passive. She steps forward despite massive risks. And yet in that is this good confidence, good confidence that all things are in his hands. Now she's been, she's been nudged by Naomi, that's true. But she herself is taking on great risk. I mean, she could have been declared as a, you know, as a, as a sinful woman of the night, you know, and prosecuted in that way. Uh, this could have led to her shame and ruin for the rest of her life, cast out of Bethlehem in, in, a, in a dozen different ways. Could have, led her, could have led Boaz to have a, a, a false understanding of who she is and to reject her totally, which would also mean the rejection of Naomi. No more provision, no financial provision for them. They would have to come up with another way. But in the face of that risk, she moves forward. Jerry Bridges, in, in his uh, book, Trusting God, which is also about God's providence, he says that God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and the good of his people. And so in a sense, armed with that understanding, even though she couldn't articulate a definition of providence, obviously, but armed with that kind of understanding, she moves forward and then just waits to see what, what the man will do. <clears throat> so that, gives us, that gets us to a firm resolve, point three. So now we're at verses 10 through 18, 10 through the rest of the chapter. So Ruth has said her, has said her peace, and then he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my townsmen, for all my fellow townsmen, know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, uh, Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she, then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go, not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So we start here with what Boaz says in response to Ruth, which is first to commend her. Verses 10 and 11 May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So the first thing he does is commend her. He commends her for, for her hesed, her loving kindness. And we, we've said a couple times in the last two sermons that hesed is this... Uh, it's this powerful Hebrew word, which is a, is, a, is a combination of elements, and no one English word quite captures it, but it's love, it's kindness, it's grace, it's benevolence, it's this undeserved acting on behalf of someone else for their, for their blessing. You know, not our blessing, not, not selfish blessing, but for their blessing, selfless blessing. So it's this selfless act that is, is only about the blessing of others. So Ruth's kindness, or hesed, is demonstrated in the fact that she chose Boaz. Now, he refers to himself as, uh, it, it implies that he's older. We don't have to think he's elderly. That's, that's going too far. But he's, but he's older, so in some ways, uh, you know, I just guessed 50 and 25. That's, that's the age of Boaz and, and uh, Ruth. 
That's a total guess, but kind of fits, fits what, the facts that we know about these, these two. But she is a woman of Hesed. And then this great statement in verse 11 about her being a worthy woman. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And all my fellow townsmen is actually, a, it's, a, it's a specific phrase, all of the people who gather at the gate. That's what that means. All of the people who gather at the gate, the elders of the village, Bethlehem. So the, the, the men who sort of govern and, and act with wisdom toward affairs that affect Bethlehem, those are the ones who have said, this is a worthy woman. In other words, it's a, it's a pretty formal commendation of Ruth, that her reputation precedes her in this moment. This is a quality woman. But what's, what's really fascinating is that that phrase, worthy woman, is identical to Proverbs 31, where it says, an excellent wife, who can find? And so as, as Proverbs 31 uh, unfolds, which is a description of, of an excellent wife, you see another description, which is, let her works praise her in the gates. I mean, that's literally what has happened to Ruth, right? Her works are now praising her in the gates. So the, the townsmen, who are sort of uh, the elders of the, of the village, are praising her in the gates. And then as you read all of Proverbs 31, you realize, wow, this is just Ruth. What a perfect description of Ruth. And I'll, just, I'll just pull a few verses from Proverbs 31. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. No check, that's Boaz. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness, Hesed, is on her tongue. Check. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. I mean, check plus, right? Her children rise up and call her blessed. You know, her, her child is Obed. Her, her grandchild is Jesse. Her great-grandchild is King David. Her great-great-grandchild is King Solomon. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. That's what's happening here, isn't it? Boaz is, is praising Ruth. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. And the, the reason to belabor that is it's just helpful to think of someone like Ruth. You know, as, as a woman, if you're reading Proverbs 31, you, you read it and sometimes you think, this is impossible. Who could possibly live up to this? But it's helpful to go back to Ruth and see that's, that's a woman who did. That kind of woman is what Solomon is talking about in Proverbs 31. That's the kind of worthy woman that she is. And the last thing about this phrase, worthy woman, which is significant, is it's, it's, it's the feminine version, of course, but it's identical to when Boaz is described in, in chapter 2, verse 1, as a worthy man. It's the identical phrase. So she's not beneath Boaz in the most important way of evaluation. They are equals. It's a worthy man and a worthy woman come together. So that's the commendation of Ruth. And then, and then Boaz lays out his plan. So there's a, there, he is a redeemer. Boaz acknowledges that, yes, I'm a redeemer. But, how, but he knows also, he's done his research. He's figured out the family lines and everything. He knows there's, there, is a, there is a redeemer closer. And so we'll go to him. If he will redeem you, great. Obviously, Boaz is hoping he doesn't. That guy doesn't. But if he does, okay. Ruth will be provided for. Naomi will be provided for. In some ways, what Boaz really cares about will happen anyway. It just won't be through him. He wants it to happen through him, but what he really cares about is Ruth and Naomi being provided for. So we'll go to him. We'll lay it before him. And if he redeems you, great. Otherwise, he vows. He basically commits at that point, I will marry you. And then he does something a bit curious. He, he, he basically says, you know, hold out your cloak. And then he pours six measures of, of grain into her cloak. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion, like, how much was this? Some people have really exaggerated amounts, you know, 300 pounds of, of grain. And that doesn't, <clears throat> that doesn't work for a lot of reasons. So 18 to 30 pounds is, is a reasonable number, perhaps. But that's still, I mean, you imagine, like, her cloak's kind of creating some kind of bowl that he can pour grain into. Um, I mean, in some ways, this is, this, is, this is a guy who's really excited and just, I've got to do something here. So just hold out your cloak. Let me just pour grain into your cloak and, and you know, go to Naomi and let her know that I'm, I'm, I'm willing and I'm ready. So you, so you know that they would have laughed later, like, what were you thinking? Like, 
why all that green? <laughs> How about just a gold coin? That would have been so much more convenient or something. <laughs> but as, she, as she's walking through town, you know, with 30 pounds of grain in her cloak. But you also have to think about it on the receiving end. So, so Ruth returns home. And this is, this is really Boaz saying, uh, you know, this is, this is my down payment on providing for you, providing for Naomi for the rest of your life. And this is me saying, yes, you are no longer empty. You are now full. God has provided for you. No more gleaning required. You will be brought into my household and I will take care of you. And this is to Naomi. It's all true for Ruth as well, of course. But it is also true for Naomi. This is the Lord providing for Naomi. And then great comment by, by Naomi at the very end, which, which shows that she really gets men. She knows how men are, are wired. So wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. You know, once he knows that, hey, she likes me, he's going he's gonna to see this thing through as fast as possible. <clears throat> of course, it has, a, has the ending that you might expect, you know, with all this buildup toward Ruth and Boaz, but we'll get to that next week. So in this case, well, just a few things about marriage, because obviously this is, this is a couple getting t- together. This is a couple coming together in marriage. And there's, there are a few expressions of God's providence more impactful, more significant than marriage. You know, how, how you and your wife meet, providence, God's providence is all over that. You know, some of our stories of, of coming together for marriage are not, are not ones we like to tell, actually. There's some humiliation or sin or some, some darkness attached to that. And yet that's, you know, in the providence of God, that's, that was the situation when we came together. There's how old you are, you know, your station in life when you come together. Big difference between coming together at 20 versus 50, you know, if it's a second marriage or something. Huge difference. And then there's all the stuff that happens after you commit to one another. I mean, God's providence doesn't just stop when you say, I do, of course. It, it keeps on after your marriage. All kinds of hard things and good things are going to come your way as a couple. And how, you, how, the, how each of you embrace those things that will have a lot to do with how happy and successful and joyful your marriage is. You know, the two of you will be asked to respond you know, with patience, with the hard things, thankfulness, uh, with the good things, and confidence in all things. If both of you, you and your spouse, are responding with that kind of faith amidst, with, uh, under, the, under the wings of God's providence, well, that does lead to happiness and joy. Not easy marriages, but peaceful, happy, joyful marriages. And then we, if we think about the, the book of Ruth in particular, just, just what we've learned so far about this worthy man and this worthy woman. Certainly there's a, there's a, there's a challenge to us to pursue a worthy spouse. You know, if you don't have a spouse, just consider, is the person you are pursuing or wanting to pursue a worthy man or a worthy woman? And worthiness, as we see from the book of Ruth, is... is is something you observe as it's lived out. You know, you don't just get to, you know, present your resume for me to determine whether or not you're a worthy spouse. It doesn't work that way. It's as you live your life. So as I observe and get to know you, as we live, as uh, you live your life, that's how we, we get to see the worthiness in action. And obviously things, you know, in the book of Ruth, like diligence, someone who's God-fearing, someone who's self-controlled. There's a lot of moments in this, in this narrative where self-control was sort of tested and they both passed. And I think another thing that stood out to me is just this notion of a marriage of equals. You know, they both, they both went into this marriage uh, understanding that they were equals in some regard. I mean, Ruth wasn't blind to the differences. That's true. But it, you don't get the sense that she came into this, into this marriage with uh, a sense that he was fundamentally superior to me. Now, this was a marriage of equals. These were... There is a, there's a headship and there's a submission involved in terms of the roles that each will perform as husband and wife. So there's different roles, and yet still it's a marriage of equals. And they both saw each other in that light. Boaz saw this is a worthy woman. Uh, Ruth saw this is a worthy man. 
So I don't want to, but yeah, we'll just leave it there. So providence and marriage. So Ruth works at, at both of those levels, just helping us to see uh, what, it, what it looks like to embrace marriage uh, with the trust in God's providence and then also some ways what to look for in a spouse. So the Heidelberg Catechism, once again, says, All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And at the end of the providence in the book of Ruth is a wedding, isn't it? And we said at the beginning that the end of God's providence in human history is also a wedding. The Bible ends with a wedding. That's not necessarily an, an obvious way that we thought this whole human history story would end, is it? So when God's people are finally with the Lord, that there would be a wedding. That, that isn't necessarily how we might write the story ourselves. But in Revelation 19, uh, John tells us this. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Now, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain for us. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, in other words, his people, and his bride has made herself ready. It, is, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this this great story of redemption that God is, is, has begun in the Garden of Eden that's continuing to the end of, um, into the new creation, it is ultimately a story that leads, it's a, it's a long courtship that leads to a wedding, just like in the book of Ruth. And like in the book of Ruth, there is no, there's no wedding without a redemption. But the redemption for us isn't, isn't a guy paying a lot of money to get us out of indentured servitude or buying back our land or doing that leveret marriage thing. Now, the redemption required of us was far more comprehensive. And so in Ephesians 5, when Paul is also uh, connecting the church and Christ in a similar way using, uh, using the marriage metaphor, he reminds us of the redemption that is required. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All those profound results, cleansing, holiness, no spot or wrinkle, splendid, holy. I mean, you and me, unblemished and holy. Before the Lord, his all-seeing gaze. He looks at us and what he sees is something that's unblemished and holy. But none of that happens unless Christ first gave himself up for us. And his, his giving, himself, giving himself up wasn't just a, a final moment of bravery, you know, laying down his life for us. It, it involves the crucifixion, which was a profound moment of bravery, as it were. But it's also a whole life of giving himself up for us. You know, he came, he lived among us. You know, his words were perfect. His obedience was perfect. He was weary. He tasted all the hardships of life. And then he finally gave his, gave his life up to us, up to the end. Shedding his own blood, being crucified, being buried. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. So all of that was part of Christ giving himself up for us. That's the redemption that this husband of husbands performed for his, his bride, the church. That's what's required to get to that marriage supper of the Lamb. And that kind of cleansing, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of hol the, um, the holiness promise there, that's for those who are in Christ and only for those who are in Christ. You know, those who have turned away from their own lives, who recognize in, at some level their own need for cleansing and realize that only Jesus provides that cleansing. And so they have turned to Jesus and said, you are God, you are perfect, you are my Lord, save me. And Jesus turns away no one who cries out to him for salvation. 
he turns away no one who cries out to him for salvation. So if today is the day you need to cry out to him for salvation, then let today be the day that you do cry out to him for salvation. He turns away no one who cries out to him for salvation. Let's pray. Father, we, we gather this morning as husbands and wives and those who want to be husbands and wives often, and we do that knowing our own frailty and, and sins and failures. Lord, we, we read about worthy men and worthy women in the Bible, and we, and we, just, we, we just know that we, we have fallen short as spouses. We have not spoken in hesed loving kindness as we should have. We have not acted in hesed as we should have. We are aware of that, Lord, and so we, we pray that you would forgive us, and we pray that you would change us. We pray that you would make us those who are more willing to sacrifice our own comforts and our own, own selves for the sake of our spouses. And for those who want spouses but don't have them, we pray, Lord, that you would give them faith in your providence. You're not ignorant of their situations. You're not ignorant of their desires. You are doing good things in their lives. So Lord, would you give them patience? Maybe this is the hard thing, that, that when we talked about being patient in hard things, maybe singlehood is that hard thing. Would you give them patience for the singlehood as long as it lasts? And would you give them eyes to see that you are, every day, you are blessing them in very specific and personal ways. And so would you help them to have eyes to be thankful for those blessings? So Lord, equip us, arm us as those who are, are, are aware of your providence and able to walk in faith in light of that. Help us to take the right risks in our lives in light of your providence. Not to be reckless or ungodly or selfish, but to take the right risks as they present themselves in our lives, Lord. Help us to do that in light of your providence. We pray in Jesus' name.